Good morning. Today's reading is from Luke 1, 67 through 79. Hear the word of the Lord. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Follow your lead. <laughs> I, I'm like, my mind is going like. I don't know the words. I need like a she or something. There we go. There we go. <laughs> get the shoulders wrong. Okay. Yep. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. When the snow laid on the ground, <laughs> then I lost. Oh, tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ was born. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long live the earth. Let every heart prepare in room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing and heaven and heaven and nature sing. Are we gonna do like jazz hands? All right. Uh, some of you are like, what in the world did I get myself into? Here's the deal. Um, some things just can't be spoken. They have to be sung, right? That involves our bodies. It, it taps into a deep recesses of who we are. It brings people together. Some people, when they sing, bring joy. Other, sadness, right? Like there's all these different pieces that come together. I know that was a bit sad. Sorry, that was a little harsh to begin a sermon. Um, but here's the deal. Here's what we're doing today. We lit the candle of joy because Jesus longs for you and I to have joy. He longs for you and I to know joy and to know it to its full and you and I, when we come to this Christmas season, we long to have that joy. The question is, how do we get it? And so we're going back to the first songs of Christmas. And when you look at these first songs of Christmas that are across these first couple chapters of Luke, you typically find at least two themes next to one another. The first is a pretty well-known theme. It's the theme of the light of salvation breaking in. It's why we light candles during Advent to give this image of Jesus' light breaking in and illuminating all things. But alongside of that theme is another that we often don't like to look at around this time of year, and it's the theme of darkness. 
And frankly, slowly over the years, the commercial engine here in the United States has consistently tried to push out the darkness. Any conversation around the darkness, any, any conversation around pain, heartache, brokenness in our world. One of the most well-known Christmas songs, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, has a really fascinating story that I learned about for the first time. Maybe you know it already, but I learned about for the first time. You see, it was written in the 1940s by Hugh Martin for a little movie entitled Meet Me in St. Louis. And the original lyrics, the original lyrics of this song went, Have yourself a merry little Christmas. It may be your last. Like it was really, <laughs> right, let it sink in. It was pretty dark. Um, to which Judy Garland was like, hey, 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 <laughs> that's depressing. That won't sell in Hollywood. This movie will never go anywhere. So can you tweak these lyrics a little bit? To which, of course, the lyrics were replaced with the much more well-known, may your heart be, come on, anybody know it? May your heart be glad, cheerful, bright. Either way, it all works out. You guys kind of know it. So um, the idea is that she wanted to buoy it up a little bit, kind of push back some of that darkness. Some of the other lyrics were changed that I won't go into, but it, all of these pieces, it needed to be buoyed up because it was just too dark. Even though Hugh Martin knew that around the holidays, around Christmas, it wasn't this overly buoyed kind of sense of joy that almost felt shallow. He's like, there's a richness that we need to be singing about, that we need to talk about. But that's not the end of that story, because interestingly enough, Frank Sinatra got a hold of the song a little bit later, and he still wrestled through the line, maybe you know this one, from now on we'll have to muddle through somehow. And Frank Sinatra was like, that's still too dark. To which he changed it to, hang a shining star upon the highest bough. Whatever that means. But here's the deal. The idea is that darkness, this idea of darkness, of pain, it doesn't fit nicely and neatly next to a chestnut's roasting on an open fire. And we constantly are pushing back any sort of thought or awareness to the darkness. And this couldn't have more distance from the practice of Christians throughout history when it came to this time of year. You see, throughout history, Christians often used these four Sundays leading up to Christmas to teach on themes for really really dark themes like death, judgment, heaven's a little brighter, but then hell. Can you imagine me preaching hell like the Sunday before Christmas? I'm not advocating that, just to be clear that don't, if you come on the Sunday before Christmas, it's not going to be hellfire and brimstone, okay, just to be very clear. But there's a categorical shift in where we think we find joy and what we think this season is all about. And how actually we are formed most richly into the image of Jesus. One author, an Episcopal priest by the name of Fleming Rutledge says, Advent is a time for making a fearless inventory of the darkness. It's not by accident that this time of Christmas is anchored in the middle of winter. When it's the darkest throughout the year. Newsflash, that's not actually when Jesus was born, was December 25th. Like this is intentionally positioned and when the days are the shortest, when we feel the darkest, the darkness, the richest. And what we thought in our culture is if we can just push out and push away all this framework of darkness, that we could somehow find a superfluousness of joy, like all this extra joy. 
But strangely enough, what we end up with is shallowness that doesn't really fill and often leaves us way more broken than we care to admit. And so the commercial gurus tell us, hey, just look on the bright side, right? This is, of course, the hap happiest season of all. And so if you're feeling down, if you're feeling like, you know, you've got these wrestling feelings, just stuff them away with some stocking stuffers. Make sure you make it out to, you know, Black Friday, which actually now starts on Thursday, which is still strange to me. And then, of course, be very conscious in terms of local business Saturday and then gear up for Cyber Monday. All of this consumption to drown out the fear because that's, of course, the way we will be exhausted, I mean, happy. And listen, I'm not a Scrooge most of the time, and I'm not a Grinch. No, seriously, like our family sings Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer 12 months out of the year. I'm singing in January, I'll be home for Christmas. Like, I love this time of year. I just think Christians throughout history have known something better and have done things better than we care to admit. Tish Harrison Warren, the author of The Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, she says, and this is so important, Advent offers wisdom to the wider world. It reminds us that joy is trivialized. That's so important. If we do not first intentionally acknowledge the pain and the wreckage of the world. And so when we come to this ancient song of Christmas, the song of Zechariah, he finds this deep joy that just exudes out of him. But it doesn't start there. You find this strange little man <laughs> who is just going into the dark recesses of the world and he does this inventory of the darkness, of how the world is broken, how it's evil, how it's dark. And if we follow Zechariah in that way, then we too can bask in the sunrise of Christmas and the joy that Christ longs to bring. Because here's the deal, every good artist knows, every good artist, whether they're a photographer, a painter, what have you, every good artist knows there's always two good and important categories in creating art. Yes, you need the brightness and the vividness of color, but you also need the darkness of shadows. And when they come together, they bring something way more rich than leaning into the extremes of one or the other. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do two things this morning in our quest for deeper joy, the joy that Jesus longs for us to have. That's why it has a pink candle. Some of you are like, why is that pink? It's meant to be like a pop of color. Woo, joy. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little pop of color, but not first. We're going to do an inventory of the darkness first. And then we're going to bask in the sunrise of Christmas and the gospel and what Christ brings. So first... Tish Harrison Warren, she says, for, Chris, for Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth. The light has come into darkness, as the gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it, right? This is victorious. But Advent bids us first to pause and to look with complete honesty at the darkness. So let's do that. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1? Luke chapter 1. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 800. And 55. Now to set the scene, before Zechariah ever sings one note of praise, we need to understand that he has been in a dark season of silence. So in this radical inventory of darkness, 
we need to first look at the darkness of silence. Here's the thing with silence. It's nearly impossible for human beings to live in silence, like utter and complete silence. One of the most quiet, silent places on the planet is this laboratory in Minnesota. Have you heard of this? That the longest that any human being has been able to stay in that lab without going insane is 45 minutes. Like we cannot endure silence, like real silence. Now shift gears. It's the first century, and it's a different kind of silence. God has not spoken for 400 years. In a context where God was consistently speaking, guiding his people, and then silence. Feels like the wind, the very breath you breathe, is sucked out of the room. And for 400 years, to give you a framework for that, that's nearly twice as long as the United States has been around as a country. I mean, this is a long time where the people of Israel have been oppressed. They've cried out for God to intervene. And this is generation upon generation of experiencing abuse, asking God for to do something, to just break in and bring some sort of relief and silence. And then we zero in on the first couple mentioned here in the gospel account of Luke, and that's the couple of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now what we learn about them here in chapter 1 Verse 6 is that they were people who were walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. These people were on fire. They were right in line. They followed after God and all that he called them to do. And yet when you get to verse 7, there are people of deep pain. Zechariah and Elizabeth had longed for children their whole life, but now they're old. They're past the childbearing years. Always asking those questions. Why us, God? We thought we did everything right. Are you even hearing us? Are you listening? Prayers going unanswered. So in the midst of this national blackout for centuries, as well as this personal crucible of silence, we find Zechariah. And he's a priest. He's one of some 18,000 priests, scholars say at this time. And basically it's his big day. They cast lots, which is an ancient form, basically, of rolling the dice. And Zechariah turns up. He's the one who's to go into the most holy place, not just in Jerusalem, not just in the temple, not just in Israel, but from the Israel's point of view, Israelites' point of view, the whole world, to go into the most holy place, the holy of holies. And he's to offer up the incense of sacrifice. And so he goes in to this room, the holy of holies, where God's presence is most palpably felt. And there before him is an altar, a lampstand, and some bread. And outside, people are praying prayers, and he's to now light the incense, symbolizing the prayers of the people. Remember this, 400 years, prayers gone unanswered. His own 60, 70 years of prayers unanswered, and yet the incense continues to go up. And he probably prayed something like, most merciful God, enter the holy place, this holy space, and accept with, with favor the offering of your people. And thinking about the unanswered prayers for generations. So what is he expecting? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. I mean, he's been trained to expect nothing, or at least that's clearly what's on display here. Because by the time an angel actually shows up out of nowhere, 
gleaming. He's terrified, the text says in Luke chapter 1. He's petrified. He's shaking. And the angel says, hey, 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 Zechariah, you and Elizabeth, you're going to actually have a kid. I know this is way outside of your framework. I get this. But you're going to have a kid, and his name is going to be John. God's going to do something in his people. And Zechariah's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so let me know, like, how, how am I supposed to know this is really going to work? And the reason we know he comes with such doubt and disbelief is because of what my boy Gabriel, just saying, he's a good dude, <laughs> says here in verse 19. Look along with me. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because... You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. I mean, if anyone was supposed to believe the angel, it was Zechariah. He spent his life studying the Torah, knowing the scriptures, knowing the story of how God worked through Abraham and Sarah when they were way past childbearing age, and he brought the promised child, how he did the same for, for, for woman after woman after woman throughout the pages of scripture. God has done this miraculous work, but when the angel says this to Zechariah, he's been used to silence for so long, he just can't believe it. It's just too good to be true. And frankly, listen, folks, if we're not honest about the darkness of silence, when good news comes to you, it will feel like it's too good to be true. Some of you are there this morning. You feel like you've been in silence for a long time or long enough, which is basically the same day. You feel like you've had unanswered prayers maybe for weeks, months, years, decades. Family members you've been praying for, broken situations you've cried out over, the loss of loved ones, either due to death or due to distance. There was a recent blog by our very own Allison Swihart. I don't know if some of you got to see this. That was uh, posted on a particular site that she began to just talk about her own wrestlings this time of the year, every holiday. Because she's not right near her grandchildren and they're like overseas, they're far away and wrestling through that. When it's supposed to be a time of joy, feeling actually a sense of loss. Maybe that's some of you this morning, whether you're a grandparent or you think about friendships or family members. There's deep pain there and it feels like a deep silence and darkness coming over. Some of you don't feel like you're at home when you're at home, you don't even know where to call home. You're overwhelmed with the injustice of our world and you're just tired of fighting and when you come to hear the news of joy come through the gospel, it just sounds, it sounds like that, that voice of the teacher from Charlie Brown. Mom, mom, mom. Like it just, it doesn't penetrate, right? We have to be honest about the darkness of silence. And wherever you feel it, you need to name it. We so, we so quickly, because we've been trained by our surrounding culture, we want to run to chapter 1, verse 13, where the angel tells Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. We want to run to the story of God's visitation, right? That he's come and he's going to make all wrongs right. And Zechariah eventually gets there. We heard this from his brilliant song that he proclaims first in chapter 1. 
Verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You jump down to verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This word visit, say the word visit. This word visit, it has the idea of intimacy. It has the idea of connection. A predominant metaphor for this is a doctor visiting the sick. This isn't God dropping by to give you a gift and go upon his merry way. This is God coming to stay with his people. But before there's visitation, we have to remember that Christmas begins with silence. And that's okay. If you're feeling the darkness of silence, don't push it aside. Be honest about it. Name it. And so we must see ourselves and what Zechariah says in chapter 1, verse 79, that he came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Where do you feel the darkness? Where do you feel like God has been silent? You see, the difficulty with silence and the difficulty with darkness is though it has a lot of external circumstances connected to it for sure. But the reality of darkness as well is that what makes it so complex is that it also finds itself deep within the recesses of our own hearts. And Zechariah, he names this. And highlighting the darkness of sin. So there's the darkness of silence that we need to take inventory of. But there's also the darkness of sin. And we need to be honest about it in our own lives. And we see this right here in Zechariah's story. When the angel comes and brings good news of great joy to his very own family. That's going to have impact on the broader nation. He just can't believe it. And so he's silenced. He's disciplined. And then finally, over time, I want you to think about this. He's gone away to Jerusalem, he's served in the temple, and then he comes back to his hometown. And he can't speak. And everybody in his neighborhood's like, Zechariah, tell us what happened. And he's like, I can't, right? I can't. And there's so much confusion and question and shame going on for months. Months while Elizabeth is carrying this child. Months he can say nothing until finally the child is born. And on the eighth day, the day of circumcision, which was customary in many different cultural situations to give the child his or her name, this eighth day period, they ask Elizabeth, what are you going to name the child? And she says, John. And listen, around that time, giving babies names has always been complicated. <laughs> People, oh, everybody's got opinions, right? Like, ooh, don't name them that. Already did. It's in the birth certificate. Oh, it's great. No, but in the neighborhood, like, they're looking at it, and they're like, no, you can't name them John because it was customary to name your children after somebody within your family line, especially if someone who was famous, and Zechariah was just in the Holy of Holies. So, of course, you don't want to name him John. You're going to want to name him Zechariah. So Elizabeth says, John, and they say, well, you're the woman, so we're going to go to the dad and see actually what he has to say. So they go to Zechariah, and they say, what are you going to name your son? And he picks up a tablet and you can kind of feel the tension he begins to write and he turns it around and it's John 
And people are astounded. Zechariah obeys the command of the angel there in the Holy of Holies to name his son John, even though it's against cultural custom. And now he's given his voice back. And on that moment is when he begins to declare praise. Once he sat in the silence. And what does he declare in the midst of his own discipline that he's experienced? He proclaims that his son, John, often called John the Baptist, chapter 1, verse 76, he says, And you, child, would be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of what? Salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You see, you can't just start and end with silence. We have to also do an honest assessment of our sin against God, our sin against others, and yes, even our sin against ourselves. And this darkness is so robust. It's outside. It's within us. And we can't, we're not ready for God to just show up. Zechariah is a brilliant example of that. We need someone to go before us and to prepare the way. We need to be cultivated to actually prepare and be ready for the good news that's to come in Jesus. Because here's the deal. Scripture tells us again and again and again that we love darkness way more than we love light. And when the light comes and it feels more like a nuisance, we have the tendency to run. So we need to do an honest and radical inventory of darkness. The darkness of silence that we felt that can often make us feel jaded. And also the darkness of sin that makes us push against God's presence and his good work in our lives. So let me ask you this morning, what are you longing for God to change this season? This isn't a season where we admit that everything is great and aren't we should be shouldn't we be great shouldn't we just look at the bright side that's nothing more than artificial sweeteners with a little bit of christmas spirit and that's not going to bring deep and robust joy You see God finds us in darkness and he longs to bring light and he can handle all the darkness we feel. And Christmas isn't a place where we bottle it up and we deal with it in January. This is a time historically for the people of God to bring this before him as we look forward to the light. And so some of you here, you may be, you may need to name that darkness in the form of a lament, a prayer that's honest about the brokenness of the world. Lament isn't complaining about God distanced from God. Lament is speaking to God with the raw transparency about your frustrations of the brokenness of the world and your very own life. And he's willing to listen. King David, a man described as a man after God's own heart, he brilliantly gives us an example of this in Psalm 13. I'd encourage you to go look at it later. If that's where you're at this morning... He gives us some robust language, and some of the things he says right off the bat is, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's Christian speak? Word. We're allowed to pray like that, to name the darkness, to lament the silence. Christmas is a time to do just that. Some of us in here may not need to do a prayer of lament, but a prayer of repent. 
Sin has indwelled and started to sit in your life. And these patterns and these practices have started to take on a different toll of destructive nature in your own life and others. And you're sitting there and you're saying, I know, I know, now's the time. Maybe, just maybe, use this as a time not to mask the brokenness in your life and wait till January to set new resolutions. But to engage a prayer of repentance, which isn't just confession. It's not just naming that you did something wrong, but it's choosing by the power of the Spirit to go down a different life-giving path. David gives us another brilliant example of that. In Psalm 51, the first line on this psalm is, Lord, have mercy on me. And then he goes on to describe how in the midst of this, he wants God to forgive him of his transgressions. And if God does, he'll actually take on a different posture. He'll tell transgressors and help sinners find the right path. He goes and says, I don't want to just name it. I want my whole life to be different if you'll give me mercy. Mercy. So maybe you're here and you need to lament or maybe you need to repent. But whatever you do, take this deep inventory of the darkness what are you longing for God to change this season? You don't have to hide it. Zechariah exemplifies that you don't have to hide it. Christians throughout history have leveraged this as a time of deep soul-searching and honest looking at the world and their own hearts. And frankly, it's the only way we'll find the deepest joy made available to us in the gospel. And once we've done that, then... This basking in the sunrise is more radical than we could have fathomed. What does Zachariah see? What does he hear? You see, in the midst of the silence, he doesn't just hear words. You see, that what's breaking in to the world isn't words. What's breaking in is the word. There's something truly powerful that when God is in the thick of the darkest moment in history, he's stepping in. He doesn't just speak a word of life. He steps into the very story himself. This is at the heart of the Christmas message. John 1 verse 14 in his gospel account. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This news is astounding, isn't it? That God did this for us. This is the one, the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. The one who knows no end. The spark of all that is created. The one who spoke and it was. He stepped into a dark world. Took on flesh. Made his home here. With you and with me. According to his promise that he made once again to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when he told him so many thousand years ago, one of your children is going to be on the throne and his kingdom will know no end. And Zechariah, in the moment that he is finally able to begin to praise God, that's what he shoots toward here in chapter 1 verse 69 and 70 when he says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This horn imagery was really common in the ancient Near East because you would see these rams, you know, like they would duke it out on the field um, for territory 
and lady rams, right? And the ones that had the strongest horns at the end who would win the battle. And what this whole prophecy is, is thou, this king is the strongest horn of them all. That nothing will be able to go up against him and have victory. And this is why we go into verse 71 and we see that he has defeat over his enemies. This is why we go to verse 73 and we see that he's not only the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, but he's the fulfillment through whom the promises of Abraham will be fulfilled, yet to be completed all the more. And you see, Luke's goal in writing this, don't forget this, Luke's goal in recording this historical account is to combat any sort of notion that this is a fairy tale once upon a time story. That God became human, sets us apart as Christians from every other theology, every other religion in the world. That the high and holy one who deserves to be high and holy became low, became Emmanuel, became God with us. This great condescension is frankly beyond the imagination for most of us, and frankly blasphemous for so much of the world when they think of the creator God. And every year, like this hits me afresh. I don't know about you, like when you start really thinking about this and it kind of sets, not just stopping at your ears and kind of moving on, but actually begins to sink in the depths of your heart. And usually every year it's about Christmas Eve time. When I'm not doing preaching, so there's that. Um, <laughs> I'm usually listening to the singing and the songs and the confessions that we're doing together on Christmas Eve in the midst of both the darkness of our Christmas Eve gathering and then the lighting of candles. I just remember in a fresh way, in a way that just penetrates my heart, that usually leads me to tears, that God entered this dark world that wanted nothing to do with him. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. Do you really get that? Is that really sinking in? Because listen, I could give you metaphor after metaphor, but this is astounding. Let it sink in. The breaking in of the word. And you know what he longs to do when he shows up? It's not just the breaking in of the word, it's the breaking in of mercy. That's what's on the tip of his tongue. The creator God who experienced rejection from his very own world comes to give mercy. Look up at verse 58 of chapter 1. Why is it that Elizabeth has experienced this pregnancy? It's because the Lord had shown great mercy to her. Jump down to verse 72 of Zechariah's song. Why has God raised up this horn of salvation out of the house of David? To show the mercy promised to our fathers. Then jump down to verse 78. Why has all of this happened? Because of his tender mercy. The tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. It's not just mercy. It's not just kindness when we deserve punishment. It's not just even pardon. It's this tender mercy. It climaxes in the story. This word tender translated in English, right? It's actually this deep, guttural, physiological response. 
It's like it's, it's in the core of who God is, is this longing to show mercy. It's extremely earthy when you think about what God is doing and describing himself and his desire to give mercy to his world. It's astounding. And so not only does Christmas begin with silence, come with an honest assessment of our own sin and brokenness, and a readiness for the sun to rise because we feel the darkness and the shadow of death. But it also is God with his word, the word coming to speak mercy. A new life, new forgiveness, new opportunities in life with him. And when you've been running in the darkness for so long, the light just becomes a buoy to your spirit in ways you can't describe. You know, it was a couple years ago now, I, I ran a pretty long race um, that had me running through the night in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And while I was running, we'd turn off our headlamps, and it would get so dark there on the Mickelson Trail that I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. It was a super bizarre feeling. It's like, no, I know it's there because I can almost, I can like feel my breath, but I cannot see my hand. And if you turn off the light, you would go off the trail and die. So I tried to turn my light back on. Um, and you could only see a couple feet around you. And here's the deal. When the darkness was that thick, and even if I just had like a couple feet around me of light, it was exhausting. I didn't know where I was going other than just a couple feet in front of me. But I tell you what, when the sun began to rise, in the Black Hills of South Dakota, not only did I see the path in front of me, I began to see the contours and the beauty of the creation that surrounded me. I, I almost couldn't even fathom all that I was missing in the darkness. That's the Christian life. That's the sunrise of Christmas. In the words of C.S. Lewis, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It transforms how and what I see. And some of you are asking, okay, so, so Gabe, what's the next step here? Like, what's a practical next step? And I'm going to say this because I don't know about you, but even just like yesterday we were running to get a Christmas tree, decorating things, it just feels like there's so many things to do. I don't want to give you another to-do. I actually don't think this text is even calling us to another to-do. I think what we need is a moment to sit and soak in the sunrise. You know, when I was in college, um, and Allie and I were early in our dating relationship, I went to Cedarville University, and there was this lake in the middle of the university, and we were walking around it, you know, one night after a date. I was like, oh, sweetie you got to see the sunrise on this lake. And she already knew me way too well. And she goes, have you seen the sunrise on this lake? I was like, that's not the point. Like, you should. I haven't seen it. Um, she totally called me out. And here's the deal. That's such a common thing to do in Christmas. We can get so busy and we can say, oh, the sunrise is beautiful. What God has done in Jesus is pretty astounding. But we're so busy that we never slow down to just sit and watch bask and so that's my challenge for us this morning is to bask in the sunrise and we're going to take some time here this morning to do that communion is another great space to do exactly that because listen right now it feels nothing more 
Sometimes in the midst of the darkness that continues to linger on, it feels nothing more like a flicker of a candle when we think of Christmas. And there's a day coming where the sun will rise and it will be like the noon day. We read about it in Revelation 21 and 22, what God and Christ will do for this world over. That's coming, but until then, sit on the crest of the sunrise. Be honest about the darkness, but bask in the sunrise. Can we do that together? Because listen, you can have yourself a merry little Christmas, but it may just be our last. Let's pray. God, I'm going to talk to you for a minute, and then I want our people to talk to you. God, thanks so much for your kindness towards us. That even in the thicket of the darkness, the light is stronger still. That even though the brokenness of this world and the brokenness of our own hearts can feel overwhelming, you are more powerful still. The very fact that the God of the universe, the creator of all, would come and become human is a testament to your love for us and your desire to show mercy. So may we be a people who receive and bask in your mercy. Stop trying to downplay the darkness, but instead accentuate and celebrate the joy of the light. God help us. And now right in this moment, I want to give you space in the quietness of your heart. I want to invite you. Where are you longing for God to change? What are you longing for God to change this season in your life? Give it to him. Be honest with him about it right now. Is it a space of lament? Is there an area of repentance? He can handle whatever darkness you bring. And so we cry, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and the mercy, the tender mercy you relentlessly pursue us with. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.